The title of the sermon this morning is Foundations for Living, Part 1. In the last uh, few sermons, we have been about the business of seeing just how much of a role that the Holy Spirit plays in our Christian lives. And as such, I'd like us to refresh our minds just a bit concerning that fact and that subject since we've been away from 1 Corinthians for a couple of weeks. So briefly, bear with me that while I review and go over what we learned during the past uh, few sermons about the Holy Spirit as he not only pertains to previous texts, but as he pertains to today's text. okay, And as he is seen, as the Holy Spirit is seen in the entirety of Scripture. It's very important that we establish this foundation in our minds. That's why I'm reviewing it. Now, I say entirety of Scripture in order to convey the point that the attributes of the Holy Spirit are the same throughout the whole scope of Scripture. His characteristic attributes are ascribed to Him time and time again. And they're not necessarily limited to any particular book or any particular chapter, but from cover to cover in the Bible. The Holy Spirit's attributes are the same. Now, in general, if you remember, we first learned that the Holy Spirit gives us direction. Remember that? Holy Spirit gives us direction. And the Scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit guides us into the way that we should go. In fact... It is the very words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes in John chapter 14 verse 16, where we read, listen carefully, this is very important. We read that the Father sent the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. The Father sent the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus to be our helper, more specifically. And this verse is a beautiful rendition. It's a beautiful example of the Trinity. We see all three persons of the Trinity in this verse. And we see Jesus speaking. Primarily, that's the most important part. We also learned um, in the very next verse, if you look, verse 17 of John 14... That the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. So He gives us direction, He guides us, and He is the Spirit of truth. And as such, guess what? He guides us in all truth. Which is John 16, 13. And by the way, it's not just John chapter 14, verse 16, where Jesus plainly displays the Trinity, but also in John 16, 5 through 15 respectively both passages display the Holy Trinity coming right from 
the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here and over and over again in these parts of John's Gospel. Not to be redundant, folks, but I want you to see the simplicity of order that Jesus speaks in John chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. So you see, Jesus the Son of God, the Father, and the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Now you might be thinking, why are you spending so much time on this, Mike? I'll tell you why. Because these passages are not only paramount to us understanding 1 Corinthians, but they are also crucial in evangelism when one gets into a conversation with people like the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, Muslims, all of whom, in their evangelistic techniques, the first thing they do is attack the Trinity. The Trinity of the Christian Church, first thing they do is attack it. If you're going to get into a discussion with any of these people that I just mentioned, you will need to know how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity. If you don't, or you can't, defend the Trinity, I can assure you that they will not only not get saved, but they'll make you look silly if you've ever been on the other end of that. We have a responsibility to be heralds of the gospel. And you can't do that if you can't explain the very basics of the Christian faith, like the doctrine of the Trinity or the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Now, we also saw in the last few sermons that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God. Right? He also speaks to us through the people that are in our lives. People that God has placed in our lives. Additionally, We learned about good fruit and bad fruit when it comes to the Holy Spirit and the flesh. More specifically, we saw that walking in the Holy Spirit enables us to produce good fruit and walking in the natural man or the flesh causes us to produce bad fruit. Very simple. The fact of the matter is that the Holy Spirit dwells in those of us who by God's grace have been saved. And as such, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us to the Father with groanings too deep for words. Romans eight twenty six and 27. We looked at many examples of how the Holy Spirit led the Apostle Paul and how this same Holy Spirit leads us in our Christian walk and in our Christian ministries today. And 
one more matter of review. We looked at what it means also to have the mind of Christ. Do you remember that? We saw that first, since God has given us His Holy Spirit, we can know all of the things that have been freely given to us by God. Remember, that was the last sermon, verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 2. We spent the entire sermon unpacking that verse. And we spent the entire sermon talking about and looking at in Scripture what those all things were and are. We can know all things that have been freely given to us by God. Now, one of the main things that the Father freely gives us is this ability to be able to spiritually appraise things. Let's say that again. One of the main things that the Father freely gives us is this ability to be able to spiritually appraise things. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, we're back into our text now, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, that we who have been shown the grace of God can see these spiritual things that the natural man, the unsaved person, cannot see simply because the natural man doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But instead, he has the spirit of this world. Remember we talked about antithesis, Holy Spirit, spirit of the world. And so, in that sense, we have the mind of Christ. We can ascertain, discern, and delineate that which is spiritual. These things are wise or prudent to us, but they are foolishness and stupid to everyone else who has not been given eyes to see them or ears to hear them. And lastly, but certainly not least, we saw that having the same mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, it's our ownership in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, 5-8, means that we should do what Christ did. I.e., He emptied Himself completely of Himself and took on the form of a servant, he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Having the mind of Christ means to agree with what Christ agreed with and it means to disagree with what Christ disagreed with. It means to do what Christ did and refrain from doing that which the world or I should say, which Christ would not have done. It means to do what Christ did and refrain from doing that which Christ would not have done. Simply put, having the mind of Christ means to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like. To be in, or to be of the same mind as Jesus is to be just like Him. 
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul said in Philippians 2, 5. I'll take you back for a minute. It means to ask, what would Jesus do? Okay? WWJD bracelet. If you ever want to read a sad story, but there's good points to it, read about how that came about. It was an innocent, well-meaning youth worker who came up with the idea of the WWJD bracelet for her youth group. And then um, Christian publishers stole it and ran with it and made millions of dollars out of it. Uh, Did it all before she even could bat an eyelash at it. So anyway, cool story. Look it up. Um, So anyway, having the mind of Christ asking what would Jesus do? So there's your brief overview of what we've learned thus far about the Holy Spirit's attributes as they pertain to our text, as they pertain to our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now moving on. Ready to move on? Everybody's like, come on man. We gained an hour of sleep. Okay. 1 Corinthians 3. The first thing that I want you to see here is that although Paul calls these men in 1 Corinthians 3, I'm not going to read it all. Scott read the whole chapter. Um, he calls them fleshly. Some translations will say of the flesh. Okay? The main thing that I want you to see there and the entire sermon hinges on this. Okay? Even though he calls them fleshly, he still calls them brethren. Even though they are acting as mere men, Paul still sees them as brothers in Christ. Although they should be ready for a diet of solid food, Paul says that he still has to give them milk. Verse 2. How many of you have ever been frustrated with a brother or sister in the Lord because they refuse to do the things necessary to grow in Christ? Okay? As pastors, we deal with many legitimate problems and circumstances that require our attention. Even the most seasoned saints go through very trying times that require intervention and counsel of church leaders. And these are, I can't stress enough, mature, holy saints of God. They go through it. We go through it. However, capital H, there are other people that come to us with problems and many times those problems could have easily been prevented or those problems uh, can easily be remedied if this person standing before us would simply do the things necessary to grow 
in Christ. But they won't. Some people come to us over and over and over again with the same problems all the time. Not for a year, not for a couple of years, decades. Same problem all the time. Same bottle of milk. Try to give them solid food. They can't keep it down. So, I want you to see that everyone has maladies. Everyone has problems and suffering. And there are those that are legitimate in that they really need counsel and advice and prayer. And then there are those that, you got to be kidding me, are you still dealing with this? We were talking about this in 1982. Things that we all must weather um, these common storms of life that we all must weather through, get through. And, and some people just make a mountain out of a molehill all the time. Everything is a 911 call to these types of, of people. So they're not marks of mature believers necessarily, even though in many instances, and I say that without reservation, in many instances, these people have been saved for 30 or 35 years. And these people would know this how to remedy a situation if they actually had a prayer life, if they actually read their Bible every day. But the fact of the matter is you've, you've dealt with this person so many times that you know not to even ask. Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Because you know the answer is going to be no. Now, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Mark 3.33 Yet, the brothers and sisters in Christ that I just mentioned and some of the ones as we, we will see that Paul deals with, okay, they always seem to have a reason why um, they can't practice what's in Scripture, or they can't bring themselves to do what Scripture dictates or what Jesus and Paul dictate. Okay, And many times, as a matter of fact, it's a, it's a common thread with a lot of people like this, not all of them, but a lot of them, that they're not only Bible reading and, and prayer are off, but they don't attend church regularly. Uh, Hebrews 10, 25. We're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of, of some. And you could quote those scriptures and those types of scriptures to someone like that. And they say, yeah, you know, I know I need to come to church more often. But then they, they just don't. 
um, they're not faithful in prayer and petition and thanksgiving and adoration before the Lord and they're not faithful in visiting the sick, the imprisoned, um, helping shut-ins, all of the basic things that, that are laid out in the Bible and especially in the Gospels for Christians to do, they're, they're completely divorced from those things. Despite all of that, and I laid that out thick and heavy because I want to make this point, despite all of that, it's very important that we understand that the Apostle Paul, although frustrated with the Corinthians, did not give up on them. And we should not give up on the people that I just described. We shouldn't. Um, Paul admonished them. Paul instructed them. He came right out and said to them in our text, if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he said, look, you should be eating solid food, but I can't, I can't give you solid food. i got to give you milk because you're still so fleshly. And I'm, I'm pretty certain that Paul didn't stop praying for them either. As a matter of fact, there's no way you'd ever convince me that Paul stopped praying for these people. And we should do the same. No matter how frustrated we become with them, we need to continue to admonish them, continue to pray for them. And if we have to, continue to give them the bottle of milk and um, you see scriptures like 1 John 3.10, okay, where we read, By this the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Those that do not love their brother or sister in Christ are put right up there by John with those who are children of the devil. Okay? So, that goes to show you how important it is uh, in the Lord's eyes for us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ who still have not moved on to maturity. That's pretty telling, isn't it? In verse 14 of that same chapter in John, 1 John, uh, John says that uh, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. I mean, these are strong words. Very strong words. Okay? You abide in death if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it doesn't say if you only love those who are partaking of meat. It doesn't say that. Then in chapter 4, verse 20 of 1 John, he says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, 
is a liar. John's words. For he who does not love his brother whom whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I could go on and on and on. There's 80 verses in the New Testament admonishing us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. 80! And none of them that I could find say that we are to love uh, any brother or sister less who frustrates us and doesn't practice righteousness to the degree that we think they should. I couldn't find one. None of us practices righteousness to the degree that we should. I'm sure if Jesus were standing before us right now, he would, he would say that if we asked him. Lord, don't we practice righteousness to agree that you want us to? No, you don't. And obviously here in our text, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is not giving up on his fleshly Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And like the Apostle Paul, we need to exercise that same type of patience with them. And I can assure you of this. I speak to myself. I know that there were many times, probably innumerable to count, that the brothers and sisters in Christ who know me became very frustrated with me to the extent that they ran out of patience with me. Nevertheless, Paul still tells the Corinthians in our text that um, they need to desire solid food. They need to move on from being a baby Christian. Paul says why in our text. And it's... What's the word I'm looking for? Um... It's a common thread through First and Second Corinthians, but he says it's because there's jealousy and strife among them. Apparently, some of these men in the church at Corinth created factions whereby some followed one man and others followed another man. And we see this in our evangelical churches of all sorts today. In verse 4 of chapter 3, we see the Apostle Paul accusing them. One was saying that he followed Paul, and another was saying that he followed Apollos. They created a sort of rivalry among themselves and, and among others in the group. And this reveals their immaturity, okay? The immaturity on their part. These are people that we see, as I said, in churches today who claim to be spiritual, but with passing time, we find out that they are using the church and the ministry in the church, or a ministry in the church, to satisfy personal wants or selfish desires. They're all about me. They're all about self. They neglect to realize that they reveal their true 
spiritual condition by their relationships with other Christians. How many of you have seen this? I mean, I hope I'm not the only one. And I'm not saying this church. I'm saying churches in general. Okay? So, these people are easy to spot. They're, they're egocentric. They're self-absorbed. Um, they don't realize that true Christian spirituality is anything but egocentric. And, and it, it, it is supposed to be all uh, Christocentric. It's not about Paul or Apollos. It's about Christ. And this is what Paul is trying to get across to the Christians in the first six, six verses of chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Church, we're not to stand out from one another in any narcissistic sense. But instead we are to work together as fellow workers in Christ. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And the Greek here for fellow workers is synergoi. I know I'm not pronouncing it correctly, um, but I can derive the English from it with a Bible program, and I'll tell you what it means. It means synergism. It's where we get our English word for synergism, which is obviously defined, can be defined as fellow workers or a combination of two or more workers. Okay? As being of the Reformed ilk, now you're going to wonder, where is he going with this? Trust me, I'll tie it together in the end. As being of the Reformed ilk in our soteriology, that means in what we believe about salvation, when we talk about Christ, quote-unquote, saving us, we speak of the biblical doctrine slash concept of monergism, not synergism. Monergism is the opposite of synergism. In other words, when it, comes, when it comes to acquiring salvation, it's all God's doing and none of our doing. It's monergistic in that God initiates the salvific process. He brings it to fruition. He enables us even to persevere till the end and get the prize, which is eternal life. God saves us solely and unequivocally. That's what we mean by monergism. Now let me read some scriptures to you. If you, again, take a notes, write these down. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead. Dead men can do nothing. God made you alive. Ephesians 4.3 He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's plain. Ephesians 4.5 He predestines us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Nothing that you did, but according to the kind intention of His will. How about Ephesians uh, 1.7 In Him, that is, in Jesus, 
we have redemption through what? Through the works we did? Through the idea we had? No, through His blood. The forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of His grace. Verse 11, we also have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. It's Him, 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 and none of you. There's no you in here. Verse 13, we were sealed, past tense, in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise when we believed. Hmm. How did we believe? Did we do that work of belief? Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Then there's John 6.44 No man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's all God's doing. Even and especially your ability to believe. You've heard me say this before. I'll say it again. I only say it when I quote John 6.44 in my sermons. That the word draw there, no man can come unto me unless the Father sent me. Draws him is dragged in the Greek. Unless the Father who sent me drags him. And I will raise him up on the last day. We are kicking and screaming and loving our sin. We're basking in it. We love it. God has to drag us to Christ. John 6, 39 and 40. This is the will of my Father who sent me, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on that last day. God keeps you in Christ until that last day. John 6.65, very much like John 6.44, and He said, Therefore, I have said to you that no one can come unto Me unless it has been granted to Him by My Father. Romans 9.11 For the children, Jacob and Esau, not yet being born, not having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of good works but of him who calls. Twins had yet not done anything good or bad they hadn't yet been born. They're still in the womb. God picks Jacob and rejects Esau. And then Romans 9 15 through 16 for he says to Moses uh, the answer to that um verse that I just quoted, 9-11, those that object and say, well, how could you resist the will of God? Paul says, quotes, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or runs, but the God who has mercy. Some translations say it does not depend on the man who works or runs. Both are right. And then lastly, Acts 13.48. Now the Gentiles heard this. 
they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed, appointed to eternal life, believed. So as you can see, the Bible is very clear. Salvation is Christocentric and it is monergistic, not synergistic. Synergism, on the other hand, as I said, is a biblical concept that that we as fellow workers of God work together with each other to carry out the plans of God. We work together with each other in the body of Christ to carry out the plans of God. It also means that we work with God as His laborers in Christ to carry out His will. The Bible speaks the same way about angels, celestial beings, carry out God's will this way. So what is my main point in all this yapping? Since God is at the helm, whether it be in regard to our salvation or our work with each other to carry out God's will, there is no place for any ego or narcissistic behavior. That's my point. And if you believe that, and you see it in Scripture, then you're going to understand 1 Corinthians 3. You're going to understand why Paul calls these believers brethren, even though they have to drink milk and milk alone because they're not ready for solid food. Are you with me? Please. Yeah. Thank you. Self-absorbed tendencies need to go out the window. The natural fleshly man out the window. The spiritual man works with others synergistically to bring about God's will in the earth. The natural man works to bring about his will, not God's will. How do we know that? That's why in verse 6 Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God is at the helm. God is in control. We don't work with God as much as God works with us. God is going to accomplish His will whether you work for Him to do so, or you bow out and someone else works for him to do so, his will is never thwarted by your inactivity. His will is never thwarted by your inactivity. There's this picture out there today, very prevalent, that God is sitting nervously by, wringing his hands, just waiting to see if we're going to let him accomplish that which he wishes to accomplish by working with him and helping him. That's blasphemy. It's blasphemous. It flies in the face of everything that God is. It is contrary to God's sovereignty and his providence. God is never caught by surprise, church. If that were even possible, He wouldn't be God. Who wants to serve a God 
who doesn't know what's going to happen next. I don't. Do you? Paul says in our text, So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. That's verse 7. 1 Corinthians 3. I'm almost done. Verse 8. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are all God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We all labor with our gifts and talents. I should say, with our God-given gifts and talents. Okay? Verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. Verse 11. For no man can last... Wait a minute. I typed that wrong. For no man can... Lay a foundation. I'm sorry. Typed last instead of laid. Other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of everything that we do. And it's the foundation of what Paul is talking about here. In other words, we preach Jesus Christ and God makes our preaching effective by His grace. Each man's work is mentioned, listen, four times between verses 13 and 15. Each man's work is mentioned four times, 13 to 15. That should give you some idea as to how important it is for us to work with each other. Yeah, God gives the growth, but He does so out of our labor and work with one another. There's no room for, again, narcissistic egos who play favorites in evangelical churches. That's why, and I will close with this, I've mentioned this three times in the last five sermons. I'm going to mention it again, but I'm going to give you a different story. Um, because somebody's got to shout this from the rooftop. Somebody has got to, and I'm not the only one. There are hundreds and hundreds of pastors in the country out there right now pointing this out. This is why when I talk about the narcissistic um, egos. This is why the huge mega churches with their celebrity pastors at the helm, not Jesus at the helm, but their celebrity pastors at the helm are imploding one after the other if you follow Christian current events. And <laughs> folks, it always seems to involve sexual immorality and um, Heresy. Sexual immorality and money. The three. Money, heresy, immorality. Um, just in the past 15 to 20 years, and there, there are a lot more than... I'm just naming the big churches. 15 to 20 years, we've had C.J. Mahaney and uh, two or more of the affiliated Sovereign Grace 
churches that he headed up, uh, his denomination that he started, okay, fell from grace because of sexual immorality. Um, then there's Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill. And then there was James McDonald at Harvest Bible Chapel. Then Hillsong with Brian Houston and Carl Lentz. Uh, then Bethel Church with Bill Johnson and his wife, uh, Benny's Blatant Heresies. She wakes up angels out of their slumber to get them to work for her. And I could go on and on and on. There's lately Stephen Furtick's Elevation Church worship team. Um, they're doing a West Coast tour currently where they blow into town and have a night of worship and an appearance by Stephen Furtick. And if they're lucky, some select cities will get a sermon by Stephen Furtick. In the Kia Arena in Los Angeles, I looked this up, they're charging Stephen Furtick's worship team $1,080.25 for a front row seat to their night of worship. $1,214.15 when the booking fees are added to that seat. Plus an additional $40 to $55 per car to park. The cheapest seat that they sell in the Praise and Worship show um, is $84 plus parking. The average cost per ticket of the latest Rolling Stones concerts, $224. I don't have to say anything more. It says it all right there. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. I'm taking this back to 1 Corinthians. Brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy, or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or robber, do not even eat with such a one. Emphasis on greedy and idolater. Okay? The greed and the idol worship with these mega church pastors and their, their churches... It's, it reminds me of the Beatles coming to America. It does. I mean, these people whip themselves into a frenzy that is just like the Beatles coming into the airport. It's insane. And when you look at some of these celebrity pastors and their ministries, you must not only consider the greed, the sexual misconduct... But you also have to take into account the heresies. And yes, some of these pastors say some very, very heretical stuff. I'm not going to get into it all. Um, All you have to do to see the heresy is read the lyrics to the worship songs. Just read them. And you'll see, I believe that everybody in here knows the Bible well enough to read those lyrics and see 
how blasphemous um, many of them are. And I'm also including, uh, along with Bethel and Hillsong, uh, an elevation Jesus culture. So, we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're talking about working together for the preaching of the gospel and the work of the Lord. We're talking about what is spoken in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 15. Okay, I want you to look at those scriptures or those verses and think about what you've learned here this morning. A couple more scriptures and we'll pray in relation to what I just said. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep There are those, as I said in the beginning, who require milk, and they've required milk for a long time. And we are required to be patient and to teach and admonish them, just like the scriptures said that I read. There's also another group that we'll see later Paul puts on the brakes with, and the word to put on the brakes with, And that is those who are not called brethren. They're called imposters and false teachers. And they are spewing forth loads and loads of biblical heresy. Very separate group. And those are the two groups that we need to understand as we go through, continue through this book. And that is what we'll see in uh, the coming weeks. Let's pray.